Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. If you haven't had the pleasure of eating old, rotten, contaminated beef before, it's not great. (laughs) Spoiler. I recently went to a Waffle House with one of my friends, and while she did not realize it at the time, she indeed was eating some gross, nasty meat, and she suffered accordingly. Here is her historical account. When I took my first bite, it tasted oddly sweet, and I thought, gosh, this diner-like establishment is way fancier than I thought because they must have some sort of tomato jam or something that's making this burger taste really sweet kind of kind of sickly sweet like like nothing I had ever tasted before and when did I realize that something was wrong I would say um, within 75 seconds when my stomach started digesting in a violent manner And I realized that no one's stomach should make those sounds. I ate the whole burger, I'm not gonna lie. I I thought maybe if I keep going, this will get better. And then I felt the sensation of everything I've ever eaten rising up into my throat. And I said, I'm gonna throw up. So I stood up and walked into the bathroom and put my face closer to the toilet than I ever thought I would at such an establishment, and I threw that bad boy right out. Don't worry, she is healed today, and uh, she, you know, luckily has had the courage to return to Waffle House since the incident. But it's crazy that I mentioned that, because uh, that's what I want to talk about today. Because the thing is, tomorrow, we Americans all across the land will gather and gorge ourselves on various food items, to celebrate Thanksgiving, the holiday that commemorates when pilgrims and indigenous Americans sat down and feasted together in the ongoing crisis of a European colonialism that had already wiped out about 97% of the Native Americans in New England. 
from, you know, white people introducing disease and other various acts of genocide. As a little treat, I just wanted to give you something to ruminate on that will just really enhance your experience of eating turkey, ham, and other meats. Today's episode is about a rotten beef scandal. Yes. And what it took to stop having so much poisonous meat on grocery store shelves. Theme song. This is American Filth. I'm Gabby Watts. Every week I tell you a filthy story from American history. Today's episode, The Embalmed Beef Scandal. So let's go back in our filth time machine to the Spanish-American War. So Cuba had been trying to get independence from Spain for a while. You know, first of all, there was the Ten Years' War in 1868, which ended, can you believe it, in 1878, exactly ten years later. But they continued fighting, and eventually the United States was like, hmm, we should get involved in this conflict because, you know, we love it when people fight for independence. That's what we did. Let's help you. Just kidding. That was not our motivation. The U.S. got involved for its own political and economic interest. The U.S. wanted to get Spain, a.k.a. European megapowers, out of the America region. Also, some historians have hypothesized another reason that the U.S. might have gotten involved was that the U.S. wanted to make sure that the black people who made up two-fifths of the population of Cuba would not make their own nation-state on the island. So, to summarize, the U.S. got involved for the usual reasons. White supremacy and capitalism. At least we are consistent. Uh, What really escalated the war zeal in the public was in February of 1898, one of the U.S.'s battleships was destroyed in Havana by a mysterious explosion that killed 268 men. And what's really fun about that was that it was never proven what caused the explosion. But the U.S. was like, whoops, I guess this proves we for sure need to get involved. Hee 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 hee. So the U.S. entered the war in April 1898. And it only lasted a few months. The United States emerged victorious by August 1898. Cuba was independent, but somehow the U.S. had acquired Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. And the cool thing about all of this is that no Cuban representatives were invited to the peace talks. During the Spanish-American War, the United States deployed about 274,000 soldiers, and about 3,000 men died. But the thing is, only 280 got killed in battle. The rest, 2,630, died from other stuff. And some people suspected that some of the soldiers were dying from the food that the army had provided to them, specifically the beef. (coughs) Apparently this beef was so good that everyone was calling it Red Horse. Mmm, horse. (laughs) One soldier described the canned beef that they had gotten. Here's what he said. A tin of red horse would be handed to one man who opened it. 
He put it to his nose, smelled of it, wrinkled up his face, and took a spit. The next man did the same, and the next, till the eight men of the mess had smelled, grimaced, and spit. Then that tin of red horse was thrown overboard for any of the fishes of the Atlantic Ocean who might like it. What we called Red Horse soon had all our country scandalized with its new name of embalmed beef. Yama, embalmed beef. Doesn't that sound appetizing? What do you guys think the taste palette of this embalmed beef was? I'm thinking rancid acid with undertones of dead grandma. Yummy! The soldier continued, It was so embalmed with all flavor of life and every suck of nourishment gone from it through having nevertheless a putridity of odor more pungent than ever reaches the nostrils from a properly embalmed cadaver. They used to talk different. Anyway, this soldier had the wisdom to not actually eat this beef. But a lot of soldiers were getting sick. So the news of this nasty meat reached the public, and they were upset. They were like, oh, you send our boys to war and then you give them nasty beef? That's horrible. One concerned mom complained to the president, President William McKinley, and was like, we are living under a generous government with a good, kind man at its head, willing to give the army the best possible, and yet thieving corporations will give the boys the worst. So where did all this nasty embalmed beef come from? Most of the meat contracts that the army had were with these meat packers based out of Chicago, the land of wind and poorly constructed pizza. Chicago became the place for meat packing in the 1860s. There are five main meat packing companies, and the men who ran these companies developed a lot of innovations that solidified their meat packing prowess. They came up with assembly lines, ice cold rooms so you could process year round, refrigerated freight cars. At first, people were very suspicious of refrigerated beef. It was like, what, you want me to eat meat that has been out for more than a week after it has been killed? That's crazy. But the thing is, money. The refrigerated beef was a lot cheaper than fresh meat. So people were like, mm, never mind, give me that old meat. Side note, I did briefly have a country band called Old Meat, but it never took off. Uh, here are some of the song titles. Highway 69, Fat Boys in Big Trucks, Road Headache, Drinking Whiskey on the Lord's Day, and of course, Big Old Pussy. So yeah, I have no idea why nobody liked us. Anyway. Not only was there refrigerated meat, canned meat was also on the up and up. And canned meat was generally the worst meat out there, just very low grade. It was boiled, packed into cans and broth, and then sterilized, technically. And if you can believe it, the meat packer bosses didn't really give a fuck about their workers. They were all about doing it fast. All the meat packing plants were in a part of Chicago that everyone called Packing Town. The plants were these huge, sprawling yards, and most of the laborers were immigrants, working in these very dangerous and crowded conditions. The rooms were dark and unventilated, and they were paid atrociously. Mere pennies an hour. The only people who got a better wage were the people who did the pace setting. 
basically the managers on the floor who would just speed up the assembly line, so they had to work at a faster and faster rate. And because these meat packer dudes controlled so much of the production, they were able to set their own prices. A lot of muckraking journalists at the time were doing stories on them and called them the Beef Trust. I would have called them the Beefy and the Piggy Boys, but that's just me. But yeah, as you can imagine in these working conditions, nothing bad could ever happen with the meats. But anyway, back to the embalmed beef in the Spanish-American War. President McKinley was taking these embalmed beef accusations very seriously. You know, because he was concerned about the quality of beef and his soldiers' health. He was definitely not concerned about the fact that Congress might lose its Republican lead in the upcoming election if he didn't do anything about it. Anyway, McKinley set up a commission to investigate. They found a witness, Major General Nelson A. Miles, who was convinced that the beef had something injected into it that was making all of the soldiers sick, and that the beef was being preserved with secret evil chemicals. Miles talked about the account of a doctor, who was a chief surgeon with the army. In Tampa, the doctor had seen a large hunk of meat hanging on the deck of a boat in the sun. And he said that after 60 hours, instead of it being rotten and decomposing, the meat looked fine. And he was like, that would have been impossible without the use of dangerous chemicals. The doctor also observed some other beef that had an odor similar to an involved human body. And when cooked, it tasted like decomposed boric acid. And some of the soldiers said it smelt like a bouquet of cesspools. Mmm. Miles' report about what this doctor had seen made the Commissary General Charles Patrick Egan pissed because he was like, wow, are you accusing me of buying poisoned beef for the army? Fuck you, Miles, you bitch-ass cuck. You're a goddamn stupid-ass liar. He didn't say that exactly, but he did use such foul language against Miles that Egan got court-martialed for conduct unbecoming of an officer and was suspended from the army for six years. Whoopsies! Anyway, most of this meat had been provided by one of the Beefy and Piggy boys, <laughs> Philip Armour, whose company was called Armour & Company, can you believe it? He had sold 500,000 pounds of beef to the army in May 1898. And an army inspector tested this meat specifically, and he found that there were 751 cases of rotten meat. And then in the canned meat, he found several tins that had been busted open and, quote, the effervescent, putrid contents of which were distributed all over the cases. So anyway, there is a bunch of various cases from soldiers to generals who were like, yeah, this beef was nasty, it smelled bad, there was probably something evil injected into it. Also, it's rotten, you gave us bad meat. But the meat packers were like, um, actually the refrigerated beef was fine, y'all just didn't handle it properly. Yeah, y'all didn't have enough ice for the refrigeration, and I heard that y'all transported the meat in wagons that had also transported manure and garbage and was crawling with maggots. So that's not our fault. You guys are dumb. Also, no, we didn't put dangerous chemicals in the canned meat. Who do you think we are? 
And actually, the meatpackers did directly address that uh, beef that was hanging up on the deck of the boat. They were like, yeah, we sent some cows that had some preservatives in them, but we were just doing an experiment. We weren't meaning for anyone to eat those beefs. We were just seeing what would happen, okay? So yeah, no one can prove that harmful chemicals have been used to preserve the beef that were making the soldiers sick and die. What the studies did conclude was that maybe the beef wasn't poison, it was just, you know, normal gross meat. You're getting nauseated not because it's poison, but because it tastes bad. Easy mistake. Also, through these investigations, it was becoming clear that a lot of the death and sickness during the war was due to unsanitary conditions at the army camps, which led to a lot of people getting typhoid fever. Like, for example, at one camp, all the soldiers were drinking well water that hadn't been boiled, but this well was within three feet of an outhouse. Uh, so basically, people were getting sick not from beef, but from drinking their own shit. <laughs> we love to hear it. So even despite these findings, a lot of people were still like, mm, I don't trust the beefy and the piggy boys. I think something suspicious is going on. In 1903, a New York Times article quoted an official from the Association of Manufacturers and Distributors of Food Products that said, quote, Since the embalmed beef scandal after the Spanish-American War, everyone has looked with doubt on any food which has been known to contain preservatives. And in general, at the turn of the 20th century, people were more and more concerned about adulterated food. There was the pure foods movement. It was a hot-button issue. Because, you know, as cities' populations were dramatically increasing, that meant that I was taking longer to transport enough food from farms to markets, so they needed solutions, hence preservatives. One of the main purveyors of the clean food movement was Harvey Washington Wiley, who became the chemist for the Secretary of Agriculture and eventually became the first commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> so interesting, but that's all later. But even Wiley had participated in the involved beef studies, and he hadn't found any dangerous preservatives inside of the meat. So in the end, the meatpackers were not at fault at all, and nothing bad has ever happened with American food. Everything is great. Ha ha. So yeah, the embalmed beef scandal, it does have a bit of an anticlimactic ending, but that's not the end of the episode, people. We're still going after the meatpackers. But it would take the work of an unsuccessful socialist writer to really make things change. BRB. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, I feel like probably most of you had to read The Jungle in high school, right? Right? It was written by Upton Sinclair, who later went on to write almost 100 books, won the Pulitzer Prize, yada, yada, yada. Uh, But before that, he was an unsuccessful loser like the rest of us. Sinclair was also getting into socialism at the time. He had joined the Socialist Party in 1903. He was like, yep, big corporations are evil. The government should take over the ownership of big business. I'm sick of this shit. He was inspired to go to Chicago when meatpacking workers were on strike in 1904. But the big corporations, the, the beefy and the piggy boys, they just hired replacement workers who kept the businesses going. And so the strikers fell into poverty and lost everything. Sinclair went to Chicago incognito at the meatpacking factories to see what was going on. And what he found was that it was nasty and gross. And the workers were treated terribly. What, can you believe it? A corporation treating its employees badly? Uh Ah, luckily it's nothing like that today. And here are some of the terrible things he observed at the meatpacking plants that he included in the book. He found that the meatpacking workers worked on assembly lines and moved at a dangerous pace leading to bodily injuries like lost fingers and limbs. Men had to haul 100-pound hunks of meat on their backs, which would lead to debilitating injuries. They were often sick, sometimes even had tuberculosis and would cough constantly and spit blood on the floor. And the thing is, if you got injured or sick on the job, the beefy and the piggy boys didn't give a toot. No workers comp for you. And besides these grueling and hazardous work conditions, the sanitation in the meatpacking plants was abysmal. There weren't enough toilets, so sometimes workers would just pee on the ground. And there was no soap or water to clean your hands. Anyways, Sinclair also wrote about how 
diseased, rotten, and contaminated meat was still processed and then filled with harmful chemicals for preservation and then mislabeled when sold to the public. Mm. And after the meat was slaughtered, they just put it on the ground, and on the ground, remember, there was urine and blood spit all over the floor. And then it would be transported around the plants in these carts that also had sawdust, rat dung, rat poison, and sometimes even dead rats in them. And then all of that was just tipped into the hoppers to make uh, canned meat and sausage. Yummy. And finally, the most disturbing thing was sometimes workers would fall into the vats. And when this happened, quote, when they were fished out, there was never enough of them to be worth exhibiting. Sometimes they would be overlooked for days till all but the bones of them had gone out to the world as Durham's pure leaf lard. Anyway, Sinclair faced a lot of challenges when trying to publish The Jungle. Uh, at first, it was distributed as a serialized version that circulated in a socialist newspaper. And he had found a publisher who was going to print the whole thing as a novel. But then the company backed out because some of the claims in the novel were so salacious that they were like, uh, I don't want to foot the bill for a lawsuit against the Beefy and the Piggy Boys. So Sinclair started looking around for other publishers. He mostly got rejections but then had a meeting with a publishing house called Doubleday Page and Company. One of their editors thought the book was fabuloso, but also cuckoo crazy. So they wanted to get it fact-checked. They sent the manuscript to the Chicago Tribune, and they were like, um, does this sound like it's for real? A representative from the Tribune wrote back and was like, this book is definitely cuckoo crazy and definitely not for real. But Sinclair was like, uh, that's dumb, this is for real. And even the editors at the publishing house were like, yeah, it is kind of sus how much they are denying these claims. They sent like a multi-page document. So then the publishing house did their own investigation into the Tribune and found that a publicist at the paper had written the critique and that that publicist worked for the meat packers. <laughs> Whoopsies. They decided to publish the book, but they also wanted Sinclair to make it less preachy about socialism. And Sinclair, being so desperate at this point, was like, fine, I'll do it. So he cut about 30,000 words. Like, can you imagine how many socialist speeches that was? And the book finally came out as a novel on February 26, 1906. In its first year alone, it sold more than 150,000 copies and was translated into 17 languages and has since been forced upon every American high schooler. Sinclair was stoked. He was like, hell yeah, people are reading it. But he was also kind of upset because in the book, the main character loses everything because of the meat processing plant, but he finds hope at the end because of socialism. And that was Sinclair's main reason for writing it. But what the public latched onto wasn't socialism, but how all the meat was icky. Sinclair was like, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. Sinclair's publishers and several other people send the novel to the president, who was now Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt had actually been in the Spanish-American War and really did think that beef was embalmed. He'd been a colonel in Cuba, and he had testified about how gross the meat was. He said that he would have eaten his old hat as soon as he would have eaten embalmed beef. So Roosevelt, like so much of the public, was like, yeah, that meat was trash. I don't care if you think it wasn't poison, there was something wrong with it. 
Roosevelt was far from being a socialist, but he was also antitrust. And at this point, the Beef and Piggy Boys had created their own meat oligarchy, just reigning supreme. And Roosevelt thought it was sus because as the cost of labor and production was going down, the consumer price was going up. Roosevelt was like, no, 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 I don't like that. I want to bust up this trust. So Roosevelt read The Jungle, or had someone at least summarize it for him. And at first he was like, yeah, okay, things might be bad at the meatpacking plants, but this is a novel, not an article. We need to verify some of this info. So he also sent some investigators to the plants, and they're like, hey, president, uh, it's actually kind of worse than what the book says. One of the investigators saw a slaughtered hog fall into a toilet, and then the workers just pulled the carcass out and, without cleaning it, hung it back on the rack. Yum yum, diarrhea bacon. This book was exactly what Roosevelt wanted. It proved that legislation was necessary. Also, at this point in time, Europe was already like, uh, we don't want this American meat, it's gross. And then once the jungle came out, meat sales in the U.S. were dropping all around the country. People were writing to the White House and their legislators, being like, there needs to be reform. We need things to change. The meat needs to be inspected at every step of the process. So Roosevelt was like, bruhs, look how bad it is. We got to pass this legislation. And so in June 1906, Congress passed the Meat Inspection Act. This law authorized inspectors from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to make sure that the meats weren't contaminated or mislabeled in any way. And the law also expanded federal government regulation of corporations and other private businesses. And then the same day that the meat bill was passed, Congress also passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, which regulates food additives and prohibits misleading labels of food and drugs. And then this act eventually led to the creation of the Food and Drug Administration. And all this, this was a huge deal because this was the first time that food was being regulated in the U.S. And so, yeah, today, all of our food is safe to eat now and nothing ever goes wrong. Sure, according to the CDC, every year about 48 million people in the U.S. get sick from foodborne illnesses. But that's just like a sixth of Americans. We're fine. Anyway, what about the Beefy and the Piggy Boys? Well, obviously they weren't pleased with this shit, but when the Meat Inspection Act was being passed in 1906, the meatpacking lobbyists, they were actually able to persuade legislators to water down some of the requirements. One of them was that it would be the federal government, not the meatpackers, who would have to pay for all of these additional inspections. And the thing about these lobbyists, well, they're still active today. They're like, this is still too much regulation. I want to sell old, nasty, poisoned meat, please. And in fact, under Sith Lord Trump, he did roll back some of the key elements of the Meat Inspection Act for pork processors. So now, in pork processing plants, the duty of inspecting the meats has gone back to the pork processors, not federal safety inspectors. Cool, so it's basically the same way it was before The Jungle was published. Uh And the Beef Boys, they're trying to get the same thing passed for them. The end is nigh, ha ha. I don't know why I'm still not a vegetarian after doing this episode. And Sinclair, well, you know, he was still a little better about how people didn't suddenly become socialist. But after The Jungle came out, he did become very rich and famous. So how socialist is that really? Hmm? 
As always, we learn a lesson from American Filth, and the lesson here is that if you drop a hog in a toilet, wash it off. Wash off your hogs. Anyway, happy Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoy all your meats. American Filth is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me, Gabby Watts. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock, and our executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Chad Crowley, and Brandon Barr. If you liked this episode, leave us a review, subscribe, do all the things. Also, you can find the podcast on Instagram at American Filth Pod. Follow me, please. School of Humans. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. He was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.